Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Well, hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and as per usual, he's not holidaying. We've got Paul Rickard here. How are you, Paul? Well, look, I was... Hello, Peter. I was good until I started reading uh, the latest ASIC report on... uh, what retail investors have been up to in the stock it's market. It's not an ASIC report on, on colleagues who go on too much holidays but has been stopped because of the coronavirus. No, no but it is coronavirus or COVID-19 related. Okay, right. It looks at retail investor trading during the COVID-19 volatility. Yeah, really? And, uh, Good old ASIC. Always up with a very interesting story. Well, they are. In fact, okay. they're, they're sort of up to date because they've compared the trading activity from the 20th of February uh, February or the, mm-hmm. the day after the 20th of February, which is the peak till the first, second or third of April, to get the date. Yeah. March 23 was the, the yep. worst time yep. of the market. Compared to the sort of the six months uh, before that, and mm-hmm. found that retail investors have been pretty busy, a lot more active, yeah. uh, been net buyers in the market. Okay. Uh, a lot more retail investors have uh, have resumed trading, and also a lot of first timers have come into the market. So, so um, is that a bad thing, according to ASIC? Or well, what? look, on the one hand, uh, ASIC sort of takes a very sort of protectionist uh, I approach generally. Or paternalistic, maybe. Yeah, that's a better word actually. Oh, but because I mean, it does uh, it does sort of typify all the things we know about ASIC. In fact, it heads up a section that says calling potential retail investor harm in securities mm. markets. That's the second part of its report uh. and starts off with the, 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 uh, this, this sentence. It doesn't have a lead in it. It just says poor market timing. The average retail investor was not proficient at predicting short-term market movements over the focus period. Yeah. And they base that on the fact that because on days that uh, – Retail investors were net buyers, mm. the market finished lower the next day, mm. and in days where they were net sellers, the market went up the next day, and therefore they got their timing wrong. But what they also say is that they were net buyers. In fact, they bought $5 billion worth net of, they bought $52 billion of shares and sold 47 They bought They put $5 billion into the market over yeah. the period. And the market's gone up. And 100%. the market's gone up. Yeah. And... That means institutional investors sold $5 billion <laughs> and the market's gone down. So who's the real dummy here? Now, yeah. this is such an uh, – I mean, look, uh, timing's everything we know, but again – Why don't we get an ASIC person on yeah, next week to talk well, about the, it? Let's not be too unfair. Well, Let's ask them to come on As, as you know, whether they're right or wrong won't depend on what happens in the market on that day or the day yeah. after or the day after that. It's all about what happens over the medium to long term. Yeah. And there's – you know, I mean, I think they've got to be a little bit careful. But that probably does give you a bit yeah. of a segue, yeah, Peter, yeah. because we're interested in what's going to happen oh, yeah. to yeah, the yeah. Australian economy and the stock market. Exactly. The medium term. A lot of people are worried that, you know, you know, is the governments and the Reserve Bank's more positive view on the economy right? You know, are we going to left with too much debt? We won't be able to pay off. All those sort of things. So we're talking to Steve Anthony, Chief Economist for the Industry Super Fund Group. Do you reckon he can explain what an L-shaped recovery is? I'm sure he will. Because we now just have Vs, Us. There's more than that. Uh, there's, there's Ls and there's... There's, a, there's even the view, part V, part U. 
And ah. there's also a swoosh, a Nike one, you know, where it goes around for the little one and then slowly comes up at a gentle angle. There's a swoosh recovery as well. Did you hear about that one? No, I haven't heard about that. There's also the W, up, down, up and down. <laughs> oh, so many recoveries. Anyway, so we'll get Steve to talk about that. Emma, he's ex treasury, isn't he? He's ex treasury, he's, he's, yeah. He's, yep, he's a, a guru economist from the uh, treasury, now with the industry super funds. And then we've got uh, Emma Dawson, who's from per capita, she wrote a great story in The Guardian about how, hey, don't worry about the debt. Yeah, we're all worried about it. She's, don't worry about the debt. We'll see why. And then we've got a lot of people are worried about that, right? We still oh, get, yeah. you know, people still sort of write to me and saying, "Is the Reserve Bank printing money?" Well, of course it is. Yeah. <laughs> so is every other central bank. Well, so That's is right. the US Fed, like That's crazy. Right. It, its printing press is run at a hundred times the speed of the poor old Reserve Bank's printing press, right? Yeah. But uh, no one gets too worried about that. Don't what people worry about, yeah. and they don't have the qualifications to worry about. But still, I guess some of them, the experts, are wrong. So, so we can. Put out of the test on debt, yeah exactly, right? yep. and then we've got uh, we've got guys from M Squared Capital. I always like to have someone who's actually at the coalface, mm -hmm. you know, lending money. They're they're a mortgage fund, but you know, I'm interested to see how the, how they're going. And our final guest, who's our final guest, Paul? Well, we're gonna uh, we're actually gonna learn about wills, Peter. Yes. Now I'm trying to relate safe wills, wills. To safe wills. That's got to relate somehow back to COVID nineteen, I guess. Oh, and, and in actual fact, there's been an escalation of people doing wills since they've been locked up at home. I blame their kids. Their kids have been scaring the pants off them. <laughs> they figure their life is not going to last much longer. But the bottom line is the online option mm. has meant, meant a lot of people are starting to fill out their wills, and that's going to be a great story going forward. Not good news for solicitors, I guess, because they're going to get disrupted by not just wills but things mm. like conveyancing. But uh, interesting that I guess there's got to be a trigger to do a will, and... Coronavirus. Being at home with the kids, that's, uh, that's leading a few people to think, yep, they've <laughs> got to get it done. Well, at a time when a lot of people are worried about the economy because of the coronavirus shutdown, lockdown, closure effects, and what else might lie out there because of the coronavirus, the, go the guy I like to talk to is Steve Anthony, former Treasury boffin, I've never called him a boffin before, but he would have been a boffin, uh, the Chief Economist at Industry Super Australia. Steve, thanks for joining us. Yeah, Peter, good of you to have me and uh, kind of you to call me a boffin. You know, <laughs> a badge of honour, really. It is, for sure. All right, now, all right, you've always been a fiscal hard man. You don't like being ridiculously easy on fiscal policy. Given the challenges we've got right now, we've seen the government, you know, come out with the, the mother of all stimuli or stimulus packages. What do you think? Well, the government has to make the call for us that 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 the stimulus uh, that it has rolled out is, is efficient, um, effective and uh, necessary in the circumstances. So it has better information than, than all of us, you know, Essentially, the Treasurer can talk to, to the banks. Um, it knows what's going on with the payment system. It can talk to the Reserve Bank. It knows about what's going on internationally. Um, so it has great information. And if, if they consider the situation so serious, um, then um, we, would, we would probably be uh, well advised to, to, to heed um, the fact that they have rolled out this stimulus in such a, a quick way and are targeted it households and small business. So mm. pro probably, you know, a stitch in time saves nine, as they say. So, Steve, does that mean you're um, a believer that we can actually get a V-shape? That's actually, uh, I understand, a quick recovery when uh, when the recovery comes? Well, it's not that I believe that that would happen, but this is how you would achieve that outcome. 
Right. Mm. Uh, so, so what 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 we what we really all hope is, is that the 193 billion of stimulus that they've announced so far won't all be required. That we might get away with, you know, hopefully less than half of that. Um, that would and that would be a scenario where we're getting people back to work as soon as possible and children back to school as soon as possible. Yeah, because there's, um, there's no greater handbrake on the economy than th- those damn kids hanging around the house. Well, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> we love them, and 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 uh, we've learned we've learned all sorts of new things about our children in recent times, uh, in, including um, you know some of their need for further educational development. But um, uh, and, and ours as parents, quite quite frankly, but. Uh, uh, you know, um, yeah, it is time to get the children back to schools and to get teachers who, who can be there back at school. Yeah. All right, so, Steve, as I say, you've been a, a fiscal hard man in your life lifetime, um, and I guess at various stages you would have assessed monetary policy as well because, you know, you guys kind of work either hand-in-hand hand or in, even in opposite directions at, at point this point in time. Uh, are you yeah. surprised at the magnitude of the support that the central bank, the RBA, has given the economy? Yeah, so, so Peter, I'd be described as a fiscal hawk and a monetary hawk. Yeah. Um, so, so I believe that you run macro policy with medium-term anchors that ensure the time consistency of decision-making. Uh, you, you know, you put in place an inflation target and a balanced budget target over the cycle, and you try to adhere to that. So, so essentially, um, monetary policy, fiscal policy, have no bearing on the allocation of resources in the economy through time. Now, we are a long way from that mm. situation now, in you know, in f- fiscal policy terms. But now, unfortunately, uh, in monetary policy terms as well. Someone reminded me yesterday. You know, Sir so J. B. Peterson talked about that. You know, the, the flypaper effect. You know, you, you, you get stuck on the flypaper and you can't get out. Mm. That's what quantitative easing is like. Once you enter this domain, you have central banks running much bigger balance sheets uh, through time. These big balance sheets have impacts in terms of um, uh, risk allocation across the economy um, that are very hard to unwind. Um so it's a slippery slope, mm. and, and, and we're on that slope now. Now, the alternative, of course, is, is just relying on fiscal policy uh, operated through secondary markets. And, you know, if we have to run big fiscal deficits, so be it. Uh, there's never been a cheaper time to do that. And provided their, um, you know, those, those deficits are run to put down, to lay down infrastructure and capital, you know, um, well, what's so bad about that? Yep. So, Steve, uh, given we've got both uh, fiscal and monetary policy uh, working, you know, in, in both in huge deficit, mm. effectively. On steroids. On steroids. Um, do you see a way out? Well, yeah, the, the way out is, is, is basically now for the Reserve Bank to step aside and to let fiscal policy carry the weight of the adjustment and also structural policy. So we definitely need to think about reforming the tax system so that Australian-based businesses pay less tax, i.e., this is the 
the Ghana cash flow tax reform, which essentially allows you to write off all capital up front and mm-hmm. to trade your tax losses. This is something that, you know, essentially Ken Henry proposed and Ross Garnow and Craig Emerson have um, essentially, uh, uh, you know, foolproofed uh, in terms of a workable model. And, uh, you know, I understand that this may be uh, in consideration, under consideration for uh, the Treasurer's budget in October. Yeah, because Kevin Rudd wasn't prepared to have a crack at that during the GFC, was he? No, no. Look, look the... The, the Henry tax reform outlined, you know, a, a great blueprint for the future tax system of Australia, and uh, it, it really was very um, partially dealt with um, by the right government. Mm. Now, look, Steve, you know, I hate to put you on the spot, mate, because you know you're not what I would call you know the thrill seeker economist. You're you're very dour. You you're, you're very measured, and that's why you and I are. We get along very well. We're complete opposites. We attract. That was a consequence of it. But Steve, <laughs> but I, I, it seems to me that this big gamble we're doing, and it's a worthwhile gamble with, with the closure of economy, economy, which neither you and I would ever expect it could, could possibly happen. The, the great get out is if the IMF and the RBA can be right, in the sense that. By the end of this year, we've only contracted by 6%, and then we get a big 6% growth spurt in 2021. And I know it's, it's, a big, it's a big wish for it to happen, but if that happens, that will be a great get-out for the economy, wouldn't it? A 6% surge in 2021? Absolutely. And, and I, must, you know, I must tell you that, that I've gone through the sort of the quarterly split, and, and I have something similar. So mm. you... You do think that there'll be a, it's sort of like the, um, the elastic um, tightens back up mm. and you get a big growth kick, albeit off a, a lower level. Mm. So this is very possible, especially um, provided that um, you know, both China and Korea are our major trading partners. Um, they're rebounding in front of us, so that helps. Um, iron ore prices stay, um, stay high, mm-hmm. that, that helps a lot. Um, we can get domestic tourism fired up again, um, get people back to work, get the schools open as quickly as possible. All of this, all of this becomes eminently possible. We just really now need to sort of try to get back to a more normal situation. Mm. Well, mate, I tell you what, it's great to hear you being positive because at times in our, you know, debating life, you've never, you haven't been quite as positive, but the fact that you're, you're really, you're, you're dead against kids at the moment, get them back to school, <laughs> get them out of your hair so you can do your, your modelling well, and your calculations. He's not the only one. So <laughs> I think so, I know, there's so many. Steve Anthony, it's always great to talk to you, mate, and we'll, we'll check in in a couple of months' time and just hope that you're still positive. Yeah, thanks so much for the opportunity, Peter and, and Paul. Well, that's Steve Anthony from Industry Super Australia. Paul, let's do an ad for a very good investment newsletter with fantastic stock tips. It's called the Switzer Report. Now, that surprised me when you said it was going to be called the Switzer Report, but I was thinking, what do you know? I don't know. I don't know. No, it is. We're very proud of our Switzer Report, which is uh, yeah. how you and I started. Uh, it's coming up to a 10 years. Yeah, know. we put our heads together, didn't we, for that one? We might have been past 10 years. We missed our 10th anniversary. 
this coronavirus got in the way, I'd say. We should look at when the Switzer yeah. report was first, first published. Time. Yeah, exactly. We should do that. And then we can't go anywhere, out anywhere to celebrate. It'd be a delayed well, celebration. Well, I, I think, well, yeah, we should look at that because yeah, uh, we, we, we actually should. could have missed that. But anyhow, we should yeah. tell people what the Switzer report is all about. Yeah, so we've, we've collected a whole lot of really smart stock market experts like Charlie Aitken, Aitken Investment Management, Tony Fiddleston used to be the old uh, editor-in-chief. One, of, one of the best in Australia, I reckon, uh, Tony. I think yeah. so. James Dunn, you know, great writer for the Australian, Australian Financial Review. People have spent a lot of time. R- R- Rudy uh, Philippet van Dyke, yeah. uh, we've got a lot of others. Julia so. Lee, yep. Michael McCarthy, all these people contribute and they give us their best stock market ideas. So if you're looking for something to give you a, a bit of a uh, insight, particularly at a time when the market's down, it's a good time to, to get into the stock market, Paul, and be there for five or ten years. Like but, but, but we don't says. just do stocks, Peter, because we also do look a little bit of investment strategic sense. We look yeah. at a bit of fixed income and of course look we understand that look there are a lot of people managing their own money got portfolios got SS, SMSFs yep. SMSFs gosh that's a hard thing it is hard to say <laughs> I'm glad you, you tried <laughs> I tried and failed miserably <laughs> uh, but want some help and that's what our job is so where do they go for a 21 free day trial they go to Switzer Report that's all one word switzerreport.com.au well, our next guest is Emma Dawson, and I read a story she wrote in the Guardian Australian um, website, and I thought, yeah, people need to hear this because a lot of people, Paul, are really scared about the debt levels. The D word, eh? The D word. <laughs> Not deficit, it's debt. And Emma, I thought, really nailed it and virtually said, stop whinging about it, we'll do okay. Emma, is that a fair summary of what you were saying? Yeah, pretty much it was, Peter. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm a bit more aggressive than you were. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> I was trying to be more reassuring. Um, <laughs> I, look, I think I think people worry about debt for good reason because um, having a high level of debt is uh, is a dangerous thing when you're an, a, a person, a working person, a, a person with a mortgage, for example. But public debt's very different than that, um, and it's not nearly so dangerous as private debt. Okay. Um, and in yeah. <laughs> so, so, so you 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 come from a think tank called Per Capita, um, yep. and and so just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so we're an um, independent think tank based in Melbourne. Now we've been um, in operation for about twelve or thirteen years. I've been uh, in the role as exec director here now for almost four years. Mm. Um, we are regarded as you know a progressive or left leaning think tank. We certainly see ourselves in the sort of social democratic. Mm. Tradition. We're very focused on um, issues of inequality in Australia, particularly economic inequality, but other areas as well, like gender inequality and yeah. um, multiculturalism, it's that the, kind of thing. Anyway, this, is, this is the second week in a row that yep. the Switzer program has <laughs> gone left. Paul and I, are getting, <laughs> we're becoming lefties in our old age. You're becoming lefties <laughs> in your old age. That's an unusual trajectory. I know, it's, it's the opposite <laughs> of what you expect. Now, but what I loved about your story was, are you compared a household in debt to a country in debt, and then you also talked about our level of debt. So why don't you just do that comparison? What's yep. about the household person in debt compared to a country yep. in debt? Yeah. So if you think about it, when you when you take out a mortgage, this is the best example. Um, most people in Australia, when they take on a big debt, it's the mortgage. So when you take out a mortgage, you're borrowing against the asset, which is the house. And the term of your loan is set usually for 30 years, and that's usually to reflect your working life. So you've got to pay off that loan with interest 
while you're still productive, while you're still working and earning an income. When the government borrows, it also borrows against an asset, but its asset is our economy, is the productive capacity of the Australian people, their ability to generate money, to generate income, and the productive capacity of our natural resources, so the the things we can export, the things we can make, the things we can sell. That economy isn't going to retire anytime soon. So as long as we keep the economy working, there's no kind of time limit on that debt. Now, you know, there are arguments to say, well, the debt's earning interest and we should be spending that interest on other things. But actually, if you focus on growing the economy and ensuring that your GDP or you know, gross domestic pro- product, the, the things that we make and earn and sell, outstrip the rate of interest on the loan, then the, the debt rapidly shrinks. So what might be a, you know 50% of, of national wealth today when we borrow it, in 10 years, if you grow the economy, um, sufficiently might have shrunk back to you know twenty percent, which is where we are, which where we were before this crisis. Mm. So, Emma, that, I'm that, saying that um, analogy hmm. must it must reach a point where public debt becomes too high because we've seen countries like Argentina oh, yeah. and and Greece oh, and don't others cry for Argentina. <laughs> we're miles away from Argentina. So, what's, what's so the, that's the yeah. thing. We don't, we don't really need to worry about that. So if we look at where Australia was to begin with, before this crisis, we had uh, 20% net debt, which is really low. I mean, America's got over 100, so is Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the real problem is when governments borrow so much money and they don't invest it in things that will grow the economy. Yeah. And then you, then you get to a situation where you cause really high inflation and you end up like Zimbabwe where a banana costs $50,000. You know, yeah. um, That's not going to happen to Australia for a number of reasons. One, we have our own currency and it's set by the Reserve Bank. So the Reserve Bank is an independent break on that, those activities. Um, two, we have a very, very strong credit rating and a very highly regarded currency internationally. So even if we were to borrow on international bond markets, and we actually, uh, most of this money is coming internally from the Reserve Bank, so that's not such a factor. But even if we were to, we're well regarded in the international marketplace. And, and three, there's a fiscal discipline that means that we don't spend that borrowing on recurrent expenditure. Now, at the moment we are, we're, we're handing it out to people in, in payments. But as we come out of this crisis, if we borrow to invest in things that will grow the economy, like infrastructure and creating new jobs, then that money pays itself back, so to speak, and you don't get an inflationary breakout. Okay, so I, I get the argument about government debt, and I see how that's different mm. from household debt. What about mm. companies? I mean, banks and major Australian companies, they borrow. Is there is there a level where corporate debt becomes too high? Oh, there, there absolutely is. But again, um, we don't really need to worry about that too much in Australia. We have a fairly robust, you know, four-pillar banking system. Um, there were, you know, that's what we saw happen with, with the GFC, of course. Now, that private debt is a whole other issue. Um, and actually what I'm arguing for here is that we should, if the government takes on more debt, then there's that likely to be less private debt. Whereas if the private sector's in debt and the government's in surplus, that's mm. much more dangerous because those businesses and households can default. Mm. So actually at a time like this, when there's not a lot of money in the private economy, uh, we've seen, you know, unemployment's going to be 10%. Um, incomes are being slashed. There's not a lot of consumption going on because there's, enough, enough, there's nothing to spend any money on at the moment. Um, there's no money sloshing around the private sector, so we need that public money to keep things moving. Okay. And at a time when, you know, the government can borrow at virtually for free at the moment. Interest rates are so low that they're basically borrowing this money for free. So the government should absolutely do that because 
small businesses aren't going to be borrowing anytime soon while consumption is still down. So we need the government to prop us up right now. Now, I noticed that in that story in The Guardian that there was a, a, a whole team of economists and, and business academics all supporting the idea that we shouldn't be over-worried about debt, that in actual fact, this is the right time to increase government debt to, make, to ensure that the economy grows strongly out of this you know, coronavirus yeah. you know, kick in the guts. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think what everyone's worried about, and the one thing we all agree on, is we don't want our kids to be paying for this throughout their lives. We don't want their lives and their standard of living to drop and never recover because of the debt we've had to take on. But the danger there isn't that they will be paying heaps of tax to pay off the debt. The danger is that we don't restore our economy so they can't get good jobs. They can't get jobs that allow them to build a good life. They can't afford a house. If they can do all those things, we make sure that there are still jobs for them and there's still an active market. And all these things need to be done sustainably as well, of course, because there's still be climate change to deal with on the other side of all this. But if we can do all that, then our kids will have good jobs and they will pay taxes and the debt will shrink. If we start cutting spending and cutting services and don't support the private sector economy to get back on its feet and grow, then our kids really will suffer because there'll be no jobs for them and there'll still be a massive amount of debt. So okay. most economists agree this is the way to go. Okay, so so in this instance, you know, with the, the, the challenge of a, a recession and it could get worse if we have second wave problems and that sort of stuff, the the, the, the solution is we all become Keynesians and, and, yep. and debt is okay. When we get on the other side, let's assume, and we actually just talked to Steve Anthony, the former Treasury economist, and he thinks you know there's a good chance that we can grow at 6% in 2021, which I think is, mm-hmm. is really good for people like you who say debt's okay because if you get growth on the other side, it justifies yep. it. But what has to happen in the economy when we do get that growth? Because you know, I was reading Ross Gittins the other day and Ross was basically saying, well, a lot of economists say, we in Australia have to get labour productivity really strong oh, yeah. going forward. Yeah. How, how is your think tank um, you know, seeing that kind of thing happen over the next four or five years? That's a really great question, Peter, because we, ha- we had actually really low labour productivity before this crisis. So it's been a problem in Australia for a long time. That's one of the reasons wages haven't been growing. Um, one of the problems there is an uncertain environment in which business can invest. So we actually need to see businesses invest in productivity and that means investing in new technologies and innovations that can lift the rate of productivity alongside, you know, skills and training for workers so that they can become more productive as well. Um, So there are a couple of ways to do that and again, government has a role to play as we kick this off. Um, Government should be investing in in essential infrastructure. It should be setting um, regulations and um, the the framework for business to invest. It can do that in a few ways. It can do it by, for example, giving us a uh, stopping the argy-bargy on renewable energy. There's a lot of opportunity for investment in renewable energy technology that we could export in Australia. That's a market that needs, you know, to know what's going on. It could provide research and development tax incentives to business. So rather than just give them a tax cut, give them um, a tax incentive to invest in innovative technology and research things that are going to make us more productive. It can invest in skills and education training for people. The government should be doing that, not just kids coming out of school, although they obviously need good training and it needs to match the skills gaps in the economy. 
but lifelong learning for people. As new technologies and automation come online, people are going to need to keep their skills up to date with that. And business has a role to play there too. In recent years in Australia and a lot of developed nations, business has really dropped the ball on training its own staff and they kind of expect to just hire everybody who, you know, who's perfect for the job. But actually, we need to invest in training our own workforce on a regular basis and perhaps stop relying quite so much on, on temporary work visas and, and really build up the capacity of our own people. Um, so I think that that's, you know, there are several ways that, that we can shift, really lift that productivity investment and it absolutely it has to be done by business. I'm not calling for, you know, some socialist utopia where the government funds everything and runs mm. everything. There is a, we need to do this hand in hand. So the government gets us back on our feet and creates an environment in which business can thrive and then people have jobs and everybody's happy. It sounds like per capita is a very well-balanced left-wing organisation as far as Well, we admit. think of ourselves as centre-left, Peter. You know, we're not. We're, <laughs> we, um, Did you we, say sensitive you know, left? Sensible left or centre-left. Sensible yeah, left. Okay, right. we'll, we'll run with that as well. But Emma, I think some really good ideas there and uh, I think you're absolutely right on debt and also on labour productivity. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. It was great. Okay, short ad for uh, the book, Join the Rich Club, Paul. Yeah, do you want to be rich or poor? Uh, rich is miles better. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> <You're> miles. <laughs> Paul, doesn't, Paul does not get a look in. Okay. So, so how do you do that? Yeah, you simply go to switzerstore.com.au and there you can get the book. What, what price is it? Twenty four ninety five. Cheap at half the price. Cheap at half the price, but not half the price. $24.95, switzerstore.com.au and join the Rich Club. Well, we like to check up with people who are operating at the coalface during this period of the coronavirus. And so we're checking in with Paul Miliotis and Paul Mirren, who are the founders of M Squared Capital. This is a mortgage fund. And uh, as a consequence, uh, we know the mortgage industry is under a bit of stress, a bit of pressure. We'll see how these guys are going right now. Well, so Paul Miliotis, uh, <laughs> I pronounced it right this time. Um, Explain to us what M Squared Capital does. M Squared Capital, we're a non-bank lender, Peter. Um, so we match borrowers that need money mm. um, with investors that want to get a return for that money. Yeah. And we secure the investors' interests via mortgages over property. Okay, so mortgages are really important to you mm. and therefore I guess the price of, of the properties that you're holding is reasonably important. Absolutely. Uh, is there anything worrying you about the coronavirus and the mortgages effectively that you hold behind the investments? Look, we're fairly comfortable uh, for a number of different reasons. Mm. Um, first of all is that we have a really good buffer between the value of the asset and the amount that we lend What's normally. the buffer? What's the buffer? It's about 35%. Okay. So really for property prices to fall more than 35, 30% or 35%, yeah. that's when we start getting very worried. Mm. Uh, the other thing that we are quite concerned about is when unemployment gets to you know, eight, nine percent, because obviously then businesses aren't able to afford to pay the mortgage payments. Yeah. Um, but essentially, we're quite a defensive. So all your lending price. is effectively backed by mortgages. Absolutely. And, and, and because, you know, if, if, a, if, a, if a property was, say, worth a million dollars, someone wouldn't get any more than 650000 from you. And mm -hmm. so if they go kaplunk, you would take the property and there'd be a very good chance that you get all your money back. Precisely. Okay, fine. We get it. We get it. Okay. So what's it like being you guys right now? Because you, you prefer <laughs> not to have a coronavirus unsettling the, the landscape that you've done all your risk management on. Now, you're an accountant, so how does it Look, initially, initially we did have um, significant um, 
let's concerns. say concerns about COVID. Yeah. Um, we did a complete risk assessment on our book. Yeah. And look, there are people that were showing signs of pain, mm. um, particularly when um, you have the government coming in and saying, well, if you have duress on your rents, um, do a deal with your landlord. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. the issue is the serviceability of the mortgages. Now, mm. um, in our business, I don't want to talk specifically about our business, but mm. as an industry, mm. um, when you have a, a swan, black swan event yeah. like that... Curveball of unknown proportions. It, it yeah. does cause issue, but I yeah. also think it's important on which actual asset class you're lending against. Yeah. So we believe that this crisis is very much like the GFC in terms of asset value. Mm. Um, we believe that if you're secured by a residential property, you might see a blip. Mm. Um, you might see a decrease in value, maybe five, seven percent. That's our view. Mm. If you're secured against commercial property, we do see risk there. Mm. Um, we think that the lag on commercial property to recover is going to be a lot longer. Because the landlords will fight harder to get yeah. the, the right rent, therefore the value of the property goes down. That That's right. Yeah. So the, we're lucky in our current weighting of our book that commercial is only a small portion of it. Um, in saying that, when you look at the GFC numbers, um, commercial property dropped actually significantly more than residential. Mm. It dropped about 20, 22%, let's say, round numbers. Yeah. So even if you you do have a bit more risk if you're secured against commercial in this, in this environment, mm. that's how. All right. So given what's happening mm. now, and, and remember, the, the prime minister initially told us that we might see the economy going to hibernation for six months. Mm. It's looking like we, we're going to get back a lot earlier than six months. Is that a good thing you think for both? the mortgage market and a business like yours? Absolutely. Mm. The quicker everyone gets back to work, the better it is for all stakeholders in our market. Mm. Um, not only for, from a commercial perspective or financial perspective, but from a mental health perspective as well. Uh, we would like to see people be able to enjoy life and come back to the normal life and make money and, and enjoy the good things in life as well. So, um, look, a, a quicker recovery will be fantastic. Okay. Well, you guys don't know, but an earlier guest on the program, Chris Joy, is actually saying that uh, house price falls will not be significant. In fact, he's expecting a quite substantial kickback in prices yeah. 2021 mm. as well. Is, is that your hope or is that your, your, your calculation? Yeah. Look, uh, we both can answer this, we, this we question. He yeah. loves, he loves the economics the behind it, so we care about yeah. it. But, um, right. In terms of our business, I think, look, there's nothing sexy about what we do. Mm. Um, no, you guys are not sexy. No, I was <laughs> waiting for that as well. Yeah. So sometimes it's no, good to be right. in... in <laughs> we won't take any offence yeah. this time. <laughs> so, so sometimes it's good to be a bit boring. Um, with our kind of business, you, our investors are making money, whether it's good or bad, um, in that there's, they're taking a buffer, as Paul mentioned, with the, with the security properties. When things recover, we've got more buffer, everyone's happy. And, and it does make a difference. But we also see in this market a massive opportunity when um, it's a bit counter-cyclical. So we are finding that you know, other competitors are not lending any more money. So our investors can kind of pick and choose what they're doing. There, there are advantages uh, if you've got the right borrower as well. So we should explain why um, the current mortgage market, which is basically mm. been defined by what we saw before the coronavirus, mm. put, put the coronavirus effect on top of that. Why was there an advantage or an opportunity for you guys to, to get into the game? Well, before there was a lending gap yeah. uh, in the marketplace, meaning there was an opportunity there for a niche lender such as ourselves to find um, 
areas of the market that are not looked after very, very well by competitors. Yeah. Um, like namely the banks. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, and we believe that the risk associated with those lending opportunities is very low, so therefore the investors are getting a, a premium or good return. So uh, a, a business like ours will make money before a crisis, during a crisis, and after a crisis because of two very important elements. And the elements are is that we are secured, um, and basically the return that we have is a premium because there's a gap in the market. Mm. So, so because you lend out at a higher rate to the business borrowers mm -hmm. who put up properties yep. as, as security, you then can pay a higher interest rate to people who want to save via your, your um, product as opposed to a yep. banking product. The only difference is, of course, banks have that government guarantee, yep. uh, and that's, but that's why the interest rates are really low on them and yours is going to be higher than that. And our guarantee is based on the securities that we actually choose to secure the loan mm. against. Yep. So you know, we have, we have a, a, a borrower who has cash flow that we test through our credit to make sure they can pay it, and we make sure that we, we only lend against quality security, okay. and mostly on the Eastern Seaboard. Well, I guess, you know, given the, the ground we've covered so far... It's pretty, pretty good. Yeah, I, I would say, yeah, is, is this a, a good time in, to invest? Yeah. yeah. Why? Well, a good investor... I love the way you said... <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm agreeing with you. Now, no, the reason why it's a good time to invest is that good investors make money in any type of market. Mm. Um, so, essentially, right now is a very good time to invest because what we're finding, what we're finding right now is that because of the COVID-19, our competitors, such as the bank, is mm. very preoccupied in dealing with their borrowers mm. and not necessarily looking at new opportunities as well. Mm. Mm. Um, uh, does that mean, uh, Paul, that there are, there's maybe a longer queue of potential customers for you to lend to because the banks are, I guess, assisting mm. the, the government in the rescue plan? So there's going to be prior priorities of who gets money and who doesn't. And some genuinely good business. I've got many an example of um, borrowers that have come to us recently that um, are waiting 30 days for banks to pick up files. Mm. Um, and look, I think it's important to understand the type of business we're getting. Mm. We are getting some um, borrowers that we wouldn't have lent to before, mm. but we are getting some high-quality borrowers that aren't, haven't been affected by COVID. I mean, things have to keep going. Yeah. They want to borrow money, they want to grow their businesses, mm. and things are going well. Yeah. But I think it's also important that last time we came on your show, not saying that we had our crystal ball, but we were warning everybody the type of business they're lending their money to. Yeah. We made very strong assertions that we saw great risk lending to businesses where loans were only against that business as one wasn't secured against property. Mm. I'd hate to, you know, I mean, Virgin comes to mind mm. um, and many others. So yeah. I think it's important in this market to assess the risk. Mm. Um, what are you actually getting yourself involved in? Yeah. Um, do you understand um, where your, your money is going? And if it is you do, then you can assess the risk and reward. Yeah, and I, and I guess it is fair to say that if, if we agree with Chris Joy, who has a pretty optimistic view mm. on 2021, and Michael Knox, Chief Economist at Morgan, he has a, a, a positive view. And actually even IMF, IMF said bad 2020, rebounding mm. 2021. That, that, I guess, becomes uh, a security blanket to all businesses, yeah. let alone you, you guys as well. Yeah. I think on that market, when, when 2016 came and we, we saw it at the top of the market, yeah. we changed our view on what um, type of borrowers or top, type of securities we took. Yeah. We lowered our risk profile because we thought that it was toppy. So we thought that the, mm -hmm. the market was at the, the peaks. 
now with the um, the lovely minds that you've mentioned mm. saying that it, we're you know on the up, it does de-risk our view mm. because the security values go up. We're generally lending a little bit. It's a bit more forgiving. Okay, this is the, the, the last mm. question I'll ask you guys, but it's something that you know has, has affected me. You know, I never ever cared mm. about medical statistics and virus statistics. Are you guys looking at that all the time and trying to become an expert on what the virus statistics are telling you about our economic future? Well, it's, it's sometimes hard not to because right. every single news item is about yeah. about the statistics and things such as that. Mm. Look, at the end, end of the day, it is a health crisis and we all as a society have to get through it. Right. Um, but I think uh, if you don't want to go too crazy, mm. don't try to look into it too much. Yeah. That's my advice. But cer certainly what we are seeing, particularly mm. here in Australia, um, is pretty good news. Yeah, absolutely. We're Got one of the lucky countries again. Yeah, guys, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Well, data shows that 52% of Australian adults don't have a will, leaving more than 10 million Aussies who may have children without legally appointed guardians or leave their families without money or other assets in time of need. But uh, the CEO of SafeWill, Adam Lebowski, reports a 300% increase uh, in interest in Aussies signing up to create or update their will during the past four weeks. And Paul, I reckon that must be because the kids are just driving them mad or lockdown is making them want to kill themselves and therefore they need a will. Well, we should. you might be right, Peter. Let's find out from Adam. Yeah, Adam, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, you, you, you've made this point. There's been a 300% increase in interest. Have you been able to work out a better reason for Australians actually getting more interested in a very important thing like creating a will? Absolutely. So I think that, you know, the kids being at home is certainly one factor to it. <laughs> but I think that in a time of uncertainty and, you know, when, when there's clearly so much on, on people's mind surrounding COVID and all that's going on in the world, Australians are looking for a way to achieve a sense of security and peace of mind. And taking out a will is certainly one way to do that. And we've certainly heard from our customers that they feel like a load has been lifted off their shoulders in finally getting around to writing a will. And it is good to see that so many people are getting around to this important legal step at this time. Now, Adam, uh, SafeWill is an online service, and I guess uh, you're disrupting the traditional, uh, you know, suburban solicitor and others who would normally be doing uh, writing wills. Tell me, um, how does your service work? Yeah, absolutely. So SafeWill has been designed to be easy enough for all Australians to use, irrespective of age or background. So users log on to our website, safewill.com, and they complete an easy-to-follow guided questionnaire that takes most of our users 20 minutes or less to complete. Uh, tips and explanations are provided along the way to make it you know, really easy for people to follow. Um, and every questionnaire is reviewed by our legal advisors make sure that it's being filled out correctly. Uh, then once they receive their will, users are able to log back onto the platform and update their will, or if there's a change in law, we make that update for them, um, as well as store their data digitally. So we've built in a number of technological features to bring wills into the 21st century and make it an easier, safer, and more affordable process than it's traditionally been. Okay, so I instantly think about those movies where, you know, 
some old bloke's carked it and someone's come up and changed the will before <laughs> anyone can get a chance to read it. Obviously, putting those sorts of safeguards in there to prevent people from changing wills uh, is going to be a really important part of the security of your, of your um, offering. Absolutely. And I think that this is where technology can play a really pivotal role to the security and integrity of legal documents. So we have a data trail on updates that have been made to will. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, if someone was to have mysteriously updated their will right before passing away or something, we have data trails around that, um, as well as obviously limiting access to people's accounts. So there is that security around knowing who has updated their will and when uh, that allows us to have greater certainty that it is in fact the will writer who is making the changes. Because mm, the access to a password you think would be the first step, but clearly there are more safeguards in there to prevent people. Yeah, you because know, a lot of people are pretty hopeless in the way they store their passwords, you need a lot more safeguards in there, wouldn't you, to stop a, a sneaky relative, you know, uh, jumping on their, on their relative's computer, using the password and trying to do the changes. That's exactly right. And so you've got the password, you've got uh, email verification. So there are different technological boundaries to that. Mm. Um, and the law has also built in different safeguards around you know, in order to validly execute a document, the signature needs to be witnessed by two uh, independent parties. So the combination of, of the sort of old school legal framework mm. together with technology means that there's quite a secure framework in place to ensure that, that the test data is the one who is writing and updating their will. Yeah, Adam, we uh, we all get told it's important to have a will, but if if that's the case, why do sort of half Australians, is fifty two percent, still not have a will? What what, are, what stops people from getting a will? That's a fantastic question. Um, I myself didn't have a will prior to founding Safe Will, uh, and in all the user research that we've done, we've spoken to thousands of Australians about it we've realized that it largely boils down to three key pain points. The first is the perceived cost associated with mm -hmm. writing a will. The second is the perceived difficulty of writing a will. And the last is that it's not really something that people want to think about. And mm -hmm. typically it takes, you know, between five and seven years between someone realizing they need a will and actually going and writing one. So we've tried to solve these problems with Safe Will. Uh, we've made the process incredibly easy for users to complete. As I said, most users completed in under 20 minutes. We've made it affordable. Wills cost just $190 for singles and $285 for couples, which is a fraction of what it costs going to a lawyer. And we've tried to build a product that users can engage with emotionally, as well as it obviously being an important black and white legal transaction. So by building in you know, messages to loved ones, uh, engaging with pets and gifts to organizations that might mean something to our users. It really does create an emotional connection between a person and their will, which is important because really, while a will is an important legal document, it's also the opportunity for someone to cement their legacy and to show the people and the organizations that they love how much they have meant to them in their life.
Um, and so we've tried very hard to foster that emotional connection within the platform. And the COVID-19 crisis has just made it a little more relevant to people to think about. That's sort of the, uh, that's, that's the other driver. You said you've got to have a reason almost to think about making a will, don't you? That's exactly right. It's not typically something that someone just wakes up one day and thinks to themselves that they need to write a will. Um, COVID has had a, a large impact on people thinking about getting their affairs in order and putting down those legal, those legal safeguards. Um, in addition to you know having children and um, you know a, a other life circumstances occurring that force people to confront their will um, and finally take that step to write it. Well, I tell you what, Adam, there's going to be something really interesting to watch over time as your business succeeds more and more. People use your service. And I want to look at the pattern on Friday and Saturday <laughs> nights around 11 or 12 p.m. at night, you know, when parents have really got cheese off with their children and people get written out of wills. <laughs> <laughs> the pattern will be love them, love them on Monday, hate them by, you know, four bottles of wine later on a Friday night. So uh, that's going to be interesting to see, mate. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us on the program. Absolutely. It's a very interesting uh, product and good luck with it. Thank you, Peter. Thank you very much, Paul. Well, if, uh, Paul, are you going to go home and uh, do, redo your will online? Well, look, um, I actually have a will, Peter. It took a while for me to, to get going, but I have a will and I don't think I'll be redoing it. Unless one of your daughters annoys you. Unless one of or, my daughters... Or a son-in-law. Yeah, a <laughs> uh, son-in-law might annoy me. But look, one thing I did learn today, Peter, yes. I didn't real, realise that you read The Guardian. It was an accident. <laughs> I, in a sense, the heading got me in because I'm, I'm a big supporter of, yeah, look, I don't mind being a lefty. When the world is facing a depression, I become a lefty. Once we avoid the depression, I become a righty. And that's where I, I'm primarily because I'm not always facing. Well, we need diversity of opinions. Good to see the garden exists. And yes. uh, I, I, I thought you probably had it before you get revved up to talk to Alan Jones just to get you a bit fired <laughs> up. But anyhow, look, uh, Emma was good. And uh, look, I think her, her analysis about debt is right. Um, this is the time government should be borrowing. But I guess where people are a little bit suspicious is how you get it back and mm. how the government stops borrowing and eventually gets back into a surplus. Yeah. We've seen how hard that is, right? Yeah. Um, and one side of the Politics seems to be a little more comfortable than the other at doing it, but even so, it takes a lot of work. It sure did. And, then, and the irony is we're just getting towards a yep. surplus when this thing came Well, along. the surplus we didn't quite ever get to, yes, right? <laughs> the surplus we never got. All right, that's our show for this week. Thanks for joining us, ladies and gentlemen, and we'll talk to you next week. Clinton time! Clinton time!